0: Father, in Your kindness and in Your mercy, would You this morning meet with us, we pray. And give us strength, Lord, to walk in Your grace and in the knowledge of Your truth. Would You let our minds and our hearts be focused to hear Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. Thank You for the good word we've heard already this morning. May we continue in that spirit even now. We ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome back. We've had a little bit of a hiatus last week um, from this series that we're in in the book of Galatians. Um, I'm sure you realize this in your own study of the Bible, uh, as as this has happened for me as well, that, you know, small books can be deceiving, right? I mean, in other words, I, I can remember when I was an undergrad taking Greek for the first time and... And what Greek teachers tend to do is they tend to give you some easy stuff in the Bible to, to make you think that you, you uh, know what you're doing. Um, and, and so where, where this happens, like the beginning of Mark and then, the, and then the, the epistle of 1 John. I mean, I think most Greek students start in 1 John. So you, and you think, boy, 1 John, the Greek's kind of easy, it's not, not too bad, That's a small little letter, and then all of a sudden you turn a corner and you're like, my goodness, I, I don't know how to make sense of this thing. Um, every turn, there's a kind of interpretive hurdle that I'm, that I'm facing. Um, I was on the phone with a colleague this week in preparation uh, for this morning, uh, Frank Thielman, who teaches New Testament at Beeson, and I called him on, on, in his office and said, Frank, you know, help me think through this particular issue here. And, and Frank, the consummate, uh, gracious, and yet brilliant New Testament uh, scholar that he is, said, you know, Mark, Galatians is a really hard book. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, getting the, <laughs> I'm getting the sense of that. Um, Why? Well, because a book like this faces you with something pretty significant from an interpretive standpoint almost at every turn. Now, we have five weeks together in the book of Galatians, so I think you know by nature the very discipline of the study itself that we'll have to be selective. Ah, That's just just the nature of the beast. And then we can press things hopefully in in the Q&A. Um, but I'm not even going to get out of Chapter two this morning. and really things start turning up once you get into chapters three and four and then five, and then we sort of sort of you know fan it out in, in chapter six. Now so it's chapter three and four where where the beastly matters begin to begin to face us. And I hope we'll spend our time in, in chapters three and four in the next two weeks together and then talk in the last week about the implications of this that Paul does as well in in chapter 6. So can we put it in reverse? Because I know um, I don't expect you to remember everything we talked about two weeks ago, and there's been a lot going on. There's a lot of teaching going on now at the cathedral with Lent. And so let's just back up a little bit. A few introductory matters. Number one, here we see in the book of Galatians the great apostle Um, The one that we heard about this morning from the pulpit, from Dean Dean Limehouse, the Apostle Paul has been arrested. Um, He was, by his own definition, now this is a very interesting turn of phrase. Paul was blameless by his own self-identification when when it came to the law. I was blameless, and yet he was still a sinner. Now that's a very interesting distinction that Paul makes. That one can be blameless with regard to the law. He would identify himself in that way, yet at the same time be a sinner, shut up in sin, unpleasing to God. That that's the dialectic. That's the tension that Paul is in. He's on his way to Damascus. You know this great story. You've maybe seen the Caravaggio and famous paintings of of um, Paul on his back. He gets turned upside down in Acts chapter eight and nine. And what happens on the road to Damascus? Paul, who is zealous for the law, zealous for Judaism, advancing very quickly in the ranks of that particular religious system, is arrested. Um, there's no sort of preparation. I mean, this is, you know, and it's not a paradigm for everything. Paul's getting cold here as well, so this isn't necessarily a paradigm for everyone's conversion. But here, Paul is arrested on the road. Um, he he wasn't at Christian camp. Um, he wasn't doing a Bible study. He wasn't in a seeker-sensitive service. He got thrown off his horse um, on his back. The skies opened up, a voice from heaven began to speak, and the voice was the voice of none other than Jesus Christ Himself, the Ascended and the Arisen Lord. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? For that is one of the most pregnant statements in all the book of Acts. What do you mean, why am I persecuting you? I don't even know who you are. I've never even met you. How could I be persecuting you? And here we begin to see the organic union between Christ and his body, the church. Paul was persecuting the church, therefore he was persecuting Christ. And Jesus could speak very, very straightforwardly about the the relationship between himself and his own body. And Paul is clear about this in Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, I didn't go to Jerusalem theological seminary to get my understanding of the Gospel. I didn't go some other place to find it from a human tradition or a human explanation. No, I received the understanding of the Gospel from Jesus Himself in a moment of revelation. Appealing back of the heavens where God spoke to me by Jesus. I go out into Arabia, my own sort of theological experience, and I'm taught by Jesus for three years in Arabia, and I come back and now I'm doing my gospel work for the Gentiles. Now to be sure, I went up to Jerusalem to make sure this is copacetic because Peter was called to minister to Jerusalem, to the Christians in Jerusalem, and I'm called to minister to the Gentiles. And they encouraged me to go out, Paul says, And they encouraged me to go out and only remember to feed and help the poor. And Paul says, the very thing that I was most glad to do. So we need to remember, first of all, that Paul, his gospel, was something that had come to him from outside of himself. He had been arrested by the truth of the gospel. The second thing to remember is that the gospel for Paul is not a secondary matter. And I think this is crucial for Paul, the Gospel is not something secondary in a, in a long chain of things that make up who we are. The Gospel for Paul is central. This is the DNA of what it means to be, to be a Christian. And this is why he says the kind of things in Galatians that probably make you and me uncomfortable at times. I mean, remember, he's an apostle, we're not. That's a good distinction to remember. right? Well, What does Paul say? If anyone preaches another Gospel, even... Even if it's an angel that happens to show up, halo and all, and they start talking about another gospel, let that person be anathema. And just by the way, in case you didn't hear that, verse 9 as he goes into verse 10, let me say it one more time. If even an angel from heaven comes and speaks to you another gospel, let that person be, be anathema. The gospel is at the core of what it means to be A Christian. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let me put it to you this way. No Gospel. No church. No Gospel. No doctrine of the Gospel. No Jesus. You don't get the one without the other. I'll take Jesus' person. right? I'll take um, Jesus' moral instruction. I'll take the kind of pattern that He set up for us in being a good neighbor. I like that part. But that part of Jesus without the Gospel... Without the reality, the expressed reality that we're sinners in desperate need of someone to do something for us. We need the forgiveness of sins. No gospel, no Jesus. Paul, would, Paul was very clear about that. That the gospel is at the core of Christian identity. Number two, Paul also says, and this is introductory stuff in, Gal- in Galatians 1 and 2, that the gospel does not respect Persons. Let me read this to you in Galatians 2.8. Um, where is this? Oh, it's actually Galatians 2.6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. So if it's an angel, if it's another super-apostle, If it's someone who's got an unusually gifted tongue, their rhetorical powers are really strong, I don't care who they are. The gospel and the truth of the gospel is not a respecter of persons. I mean, isn't this something to hear the apostles say this? It's actually quite striking to my mind. Here the apostle says, I went up to Jerusalem to make sure that we were on the same page with the apostles there, and I went to talk with these people, and frankly, who they were doesn't really matter to me all that much. God doesn't show favoritism. That's a, there's a significant um, theological point that Paul is making here. And that is the strength of the truth in light of powerful people. I mean, these are powerful. This is Peter, by the way. We're about to see Peter and Paul go into a showdown. This is Peter. These are, the, these are the apostles. These are the ones who broke bread with Jesus Himself. And for Paul, all of that really is kind of insignificant in light of the truth of the Gospel as it relates to the person and the work of Jesus. There's a strength. There's a security. There's a relinquishing of insecurity, frankly, when our lives begin to be oriented around the truth of the Gospel and then we move outward from that. There's a security that comes with that. Um, What does it say in the book of Proverbs? The fear of man brings a snare, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I mean, this is Paul. Why? Because God's revealed Himself in Jesus. He's done so definitively. The fullness of time is here. And therefore, I'm not going to be ensnared by the fear of man. I'm not going to massage the truth of the Gospel to make it fit in various contexts in ways that are inappropriate to the Gospel itself. Why? Because God has spoken and this is His truth. There's a security that comes with that. Number three. The The Gospel preached and we mentioned this already was a gospel directly from Christ himself and here's the purpose I wanted to read this to you out of Galatians 1 here's the purpose Galatians 1:15 and 16 but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace and by the way that's Old Testament prophet language right there here is Paul Using Old Testament prophetic call language like Jeremiah 1, before you were in your mother's womb, I called you. Like the servant in Isaiah chapter 49, when you were in your mother's womb, I set you apart. Here's Paul saying, when I was in my mother's womb, the Lord had already called me and set me apart. For what reason? For this reason. So that He could reveal His Son to me and that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. That was the reason. God revealed himself so that he might preach the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. Now, if you remember, reaching deep into your memory banks from two weeks ago, for those of you who are here, I won't quiz you, don't worry. Um, but we talked about an overarching category that helps to make some sense out of the out of the difficult language that Paul uses. And by the way, take comfort if you find difficulties in reading Paul. Take comfort. Even Peter himself. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God in his epistles, First and Second Peter says, you know, the things Paul said, they're kind of hard to understand, right? So t- take encouragement. I-, I at least take encouragement of that. I mean, this is, this is difficult. The one big category that I think might help us is the category of eschatology. And that is for Paul, that promised future age that is witnessed to in the Old Testament from the beginning to the end. Has now come upon them in the middle of time. What the Jewish, uh, what Judaism believed would happen at the end of time, for Paul, this is taking place in the middle of time, in the person and work of Jesus. So that now we live in the overlap of the ages. The old age was the age dominated by sin. The new age is the age dominated by Christ. In his resurrection, we live in the overlap of the ages. We live in the new age. Behold, I make all things new. We're in the middle of that making all things new process that will then culminate in time and in time and space. And that's significant. And why it's significant is because, we, well, frankly, this eschatological apocalyptic notion that Paul is working with also helps us make sense of Paul's doctrine of sin. Now let me just stop for a second and talk about sin. And You can't leave, right? Um, we tend to think of sin, I don't know what you tend to think of, I tend to think of sin as lowercase s uh, sins. I do bad things. Um, I yell at my kids. I do whatever, right? We think about lowercase s sins. Paul does as well. But there's another notion at work for Paul, and this is extremely significant to my mind. It's sin as almost a personality in and of itself. This category, this person, this figure, this capital S sin thing that's laid siege of all that is good in the world and used it for its own means. By the way, this is very important in wrestling with Paul's understanding of the law In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, is the law bad? And he doesn't talk this way very often. Matter of fact, there's only a few times where he does it. He says, no way. The Greek there is meganoita. It's like there's no possibility that that's the case, that the law is unholy or that the law is bad. But sin laid siege on that which was good and put it to its own sinful use. That tension that you feel with Paul and the law and sin grabbing that which was good and holy because it comes from God Himself. God does not compete with Himself in His own expression of His will and His ways. That that good and holy law, which Psalms 19 talks about it being like a honeycomb and sweet, that that law sin laid siege of and used it to its own end so that it became the means of our death and not the means of our life. And just so that you know this about Paul and the law, which is a very tricky conversation, frankly, and it was a tricky issue. But for Paul and the law, Paul's tension that you feel about his relationship to the law is a tension that's at play fully and completely in the Old Testament itself. In other words, Paul's not working here with brand new categories. He's working with categories that are present already in the Old Testament via the the unlocking of heaven through Jesus Christ. So he's viewing the Old Testament now through this lens. But what do you see in Deuteronomy? Here's the law. It's the means of your life. Walk in it. That's the call. It's a good thing. And what do we find when we get into the prophets? Namely, Ezekiel. You remember that law? That promise of life? It's the very means by which you are now being put to death. That tension that you feel with Paul and the law and all of his letters is a tension that is materially at play in the Old Testament itself. Sin had laid siege on that which was good. And now it had used it toward a means of death and not the means of life. And Jesus comes in to make all things right. The Torah, the law, is incapable of producing a right relationship with God. It's incapable why? Because sin was using it toward its own means. It had laid siege on it. But Jesus came. Let's use the right let's use the Bible language. Jesus came to do battle. He came to do battle with that alien, foreign category of sin. He did a battle with sin on the cross, overcoming it, victorious over it and now bringing in the new age and rendering sin inoperative or at least mortally wounded. Mortally wounded. So, that's all introduction. Now, Galatians 2. right? Galatians 2. We have time, don't worry. So something happens here. When Cephas came to Antioch, Galatians 2.11, and just a little sort of prime the pump here, this story really embarrassed some of the church fathers. In other words, it's not fun to see two apostles kind of going at it. Although, let's be frank about this, we don't see two apostles going at it. We don't get Peter's side of the story. It would be actually kind of, kind of interesting to hear. I have some suppositions about that myself. I think Peter probably could have been easily defensive about what he's about to do here, and even maybe pull a little Bible out to support it. Now, so I don't know what Peter would have said, but it is a little bit uncomfortable to see two apostles facing off against one another this way, much less the apostle Peter. I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. I mean, I think Jesus said that, right? So this is a, this is a, this made the, some early church fathers, namely Jerome, was one of them, very uncomfortable. Jerome actually tried to rework the story so that what Paul is doing is kind of playing a little charade game. He actually agrees with Peter, Jerome says. Right? He agrees with Peter, but he's playing a little charade game to make a, a different point. But under the surface, you know, they're giving each other a wink-wink. Um, and you know, so this, is, this has been, if it troubles you, you're not alone. It's troubled others as well. By the way, Jerome's wrong on this. <laughs> and I, Augustine thought he was wrong too. So when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him face-to-face face because he stood condemned For before certain men came from James, that is from the Jerusalem circle of Christians, and here they are in Antioch in Asia Minor. So before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. like what you would expect. Acts 10, you know, the sheet comes down, there's some pigs on there, maybe a little bacon, a little barbecue pork, I don't know. And and God tells Peter, go eat that. Peter's like, I'm not going to touch that stuff, I'm a Jew. And he says, go eat it, Peter, and he does. Well, how can I call unclean that which God has called? Clean. So we see Peter already making this move in the book of Acts. Here he is in Antioch. He's sharing table fellowship with Gentiles. He's doing so because of the gospel. But when these men from James arrived, he began to draw back. He began to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. So what happened here? Well, he begins to withdraw from table fellowship with Gentiles, with the Goyim, people like you and me. He begins to separate from them because this group, this circumcision group comes in and they understand that observance of the law is necessary to salvation. It's a kind of Jesus plus something, a kind of legalized religion. Now That's a little bit unnuanced, but we'll leave it there for the, for the moment. So here was the priority of certain religious norms that were coming from Jerusalem into Antioch. And now, here is Paul observing that Peter's starting to withdraw. He's starting to feel the pressure from these, his, his own circle, really, back in Jerusalem. And he begins to, to back away. And then, and this is what really begins to hack Paul off, verse 13, then other Jews joined him in the hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, now feel this, even Barnabas was led astray. Not Barnabas. Not you, Barnabas. I mean, we've gone on mission together. If and there's debates, by the way, whether or not this letter is written to a southern Galatian community or a northern Galatian community. I'm not going to belabor you with that. I, I'm, I'll side with the Southern Galatian group for now, but maybe change my mind later. But if it is the Southern Galatian group, then Barnabas actually went on these missionary journeys with Paul into this region. So Barnabas was with Paul in the founding of this fledgling community there, and he's like, "Not you, Barnabas. I mean, not. I mean, the wounds of a friend cut cut deeply. I mean, this is Paul's partner in ministry who himself is getting affected by." Peter's hypocrisy and his pulling away from, from table fellowship. The wounds of a friend. So 2.14, and when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter or Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? I mean, do you hear the force of that? In other words, come on, Peter. We know that you've been sharing table fellowship. We know that you're not observing the dietary laws anymore. We know that you're not doing this in and of yourself. If you are a Jew and you're not living like a Jew, why are you now beginning to force and encourage these Gentiles to follow in a similar pattern? I mean, what is, what's Paul doing? This is a classic calling a spade a spade moment. And, and bringing Cephas, frankly, in front of a group... Um, to, uh, to account. Um, this is troubling, by the way, because Paul, Paul's not really following the Matthew 18 principle here, is he? I mean, well, if, you, if a brother is offending you, or, or ha- is, an, is sinning, go to that person one-on-one. And then if they won't listen to you, take another person. And if they won't listen to you, then we'll then go get you know, make it a public matter. That's the kind of move of Matthew 18. But there's a tension in the Bible itself. I mean, Paul himself says in the pastoral letters, "For people who are doing public kind of sins, rebuke them publicly." So this is what he's doing. He's he's going that route, and he's rebuking Peter publicly. Why? Because the gospel is at is at stake. Now, let me let me back up here, because you know, well, how else do I put this? Paul's not always nice, right? Um, I don't know what you think about that word, nice. Um, it makes me feel kind of funny. Now, now I've said this in other contexts, so this this isn't very polished, so forgive me. Um, but n- no one gets sort of spiritual points for what I might call the spiritual gift of jackass, right? I mean, in other words, you, you, you're just kind of an offensive person. You know, I think some people think I'm suffering... I'm suffering for the truth of the gospel, and you want to sort of pull them aside. No, you're not suffering for the truth of the gospel. You're just kind of an abrasive person. I mean You don't, you know, there's no, you don't get any sort of points for suffering for Jesus because of that. So I don't want to just put that out there. But on the other side of the matter, here is Paul, and Paul's not really being nice. In, in other words, Paul's not having a moment here where he's he's um, having a confrontation by a thousand qualifications. Now listen, bro, you know it's like how we how. Some of you, I would never do this. Some of you might, you know, in an encounter with your wife, say, "I I want you know, I love you, but I've I've never, I've never done that." Uh, But of course, I have. (laughs) You you sort of prime the pump, you know, "I love you, brother." Um, You you know, "I I hope we're okay." And then we come in for the, I don't know, the jugular and some sort of confrontation. Paul's not doing that. He's not measuring his words. He's going right after um, Peter. And why is he doing it? He's doing it because the gospel is at stake gospel's at stake this is the best illustration i can think of i mean it's like a mother or a father that sees their children all of us it's like that frighter that fight or flight syndrome you see your child in danger all of a sudden social norms become rather inconsequential right in other words i'm not someone who really yell in public well when you see a car reversing toward your child you yell you don't care where you are right I my, hope th- my, oh, my, mother, my mother doesn't hear this, and she, she may. Um, but I, I had, I, as a baby, this, we tease her about this to this day, my father does at least. I, I had pleonoric stenosis, so I had surgery as a little baby, and, and apparently the nurses weren't feeding. And they, were, they kept putting, after I was allowed feeding, they kept putting my mother off, and, and, uh, and they said, um, you know, we'll get to it, and they wouldn't do it. And then finally, my mother went down and had words with them, right? Because this is a mother who's concerned. Now, words that my mother denies that she has said to this day, but my father as a competing sort of testimony in this. Um, <laughs> why? Because when your children are drowning, social mores sort of go out to pasture. And this is what's going on with Paul here. This this is my flock. The, the, these, are, these are my children. Why they're not my children because of my own personality. Matter of fact, Paul tries to play down his personality. He's not interested in a personality cult at all. But it's the Gospel that is at stake here. This is what is central. And when mothers get concerned about their children or when they're in imminent danger, they come unglued. And Paul's coming unglued right here, here before us. Now let me say this as well. There's something significant about this encounter here between Peter and Paul. There's always a danger, isn't there, to surrender to traditional cultural practices This is what's going on. The traditional cultural practices of Peter and Barnabas were their background. They are surrendering to them in light of the truth. They're making the truth light, or they're lessening the truth in light of the cultural norms that are assumed. And this is what unleashes Paul. There are social implications of this, and we're going to see this in Galatians. All of us, Jew, Gentile. Male, female. Slave-free. All of us stand in equal footing before God. All of us do. This is a radical reordering of social norms. Both back in ancient Israel or the ancient Greco-Roman world with what was going on with early Christianity, and in our world today, the Gospel renders mute when it comes to social norms the differences between race and the differences between gender and the differences in our in our social standing. You remember that publican went into the, into the temple and then the Pharisee went into the temple. They both started praying. And, and and the Pharisee began to pray and he thanked God. And by the way, that Pharisee might have been blameless according to the law as well. I don't mean, remember that. But the Pharisee began to pray and say, "You know, I'm really glad I'm not like that guy. Whereas the publican didn't know what else to do but say, Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy. What Paul is talking about here in this encounter between himself and Peter is you and I, we are permanent members of the Kyrie Eleison Club. That's our social standing now. It doesn't matter where you fit in sort of ecosystem of Birmingham or what sort of socioeconomic standing you have within the the community. Then all those things are fine. I don't mean to, to attenuate or diminish them in any sense. But when it comes to our standing before God, All of us, our identity is founded in our membership in the Kyrie Eleison group. Lord, have mercy. What is it that Paul's after here? Paul's after something very simple. The Gospel renders human effort and human achievement mute. It's over. The kind of social standing, your human achievement certain kind of religious norms that you, we maybe those things get rendered mute in light of the gospel or let me rephrase it in the way it's probably better the gospel begins to shape the way in which we understand those social realities as well gender race and social social standing why well this is i wanted to get to the meat of this today but i'll just end it with this because verse 15 and following these are hard verses. I've had to think long and hard about these this week. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, here it's very possible that Paul is quoting and fiddling with things just a little bit right out of Psalm 143, verse 2. Lord, do not judge your servants because you know, Psalm 143, three, two, that no one is righteous before you. That's out of Psalm 143. And here Paul is rendering this. We, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by works. Just go read the Psalter. But we're, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified, made righteous by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. What's the point here? The point here is the law... Human achievement, the turning in on the self for standing before God, for for religious standing before God, or social standing before God, is rendered inoperative, ineffective, and uh, and unable to do that. And here's where Paul, I think, is actually quite masterful. And he says, even we Jews know that that's the case. We know that that's the case. And we'll get into more of this in the next two weeks when we continue with Paul and the law. But even the Jews know that they can't do this. Well, let, let me sort of jump ahead here. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Again, a tough little phrase here. What do you mean, through the law I died to the law? This might very well be the kind of logic that you hear in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul says, yes, no one is made righteous by the law, but the gospel is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. In other words, Paul is going to the law and the prophets of the Old Testament to give shape and meat and scope to this gospel that he's teaching about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the Old Testament law and prophets are not rendered superfluous, but they're infused now with fuller significance and meaning in light of the moment that they're in. And here's the verse, and then we're done. You know this verse. It's kind of a Christian tattoo verse, isn't it? I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body that is in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is it that Paul's claiming here? That our lives, this is the amazing turn of phrase, we have been co crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I that's living. But it's Christ that's living in me. Again, this is eschatological language for Paul. The old age dominated by sin and the flesh is gone when I have been crucified with Christ. And now I live in the new age. An age that's dominated, that's made sense of by by Jesus Himself. I live in Him. He gives me my means for viewing all the world and, and all of life. Now one thing I just want to say real quickly. This is controversial, right? because I want to be honest about this. This is controversial. I am becoming more convinced... Oh boy, I could change my mind on this, you can tell I'm nervous. But I am becoming more convinced that there's a certain phrase, the faith of Jesus Christ, which is often rendered faith in Jesus. And by the way, the faith in language is all over Paul. So I'm not pushing that aside. But the particular phrase, works of the law over against the faith in or of Jesus Christ, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it's Jesus Christ's own faithfulness. So in other words, we have the works of the law over against the faithfulness of Jesus. I'm not saved by the works of the law, but I live by the faith, namely, that faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, the faith or the faithfulness, the making good on the covenant obligations that I know about in the Old Testament, Jesus did that for me. I have faith in His faithfulness. I look to Him. And now that frees me to live the life that He's called me to live. I don't, I don't live anymore. I live by the faith, namely, that faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Can I close with this? And I don't think we have time for questions. Next week. I'll close with this. you know what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20? It's a verse we all know and probably in some sense knowing it um, makes us overly familiar with it. But this is a verse that for Paul, I think you begin to hear the earthquake underneath it. I don't, I don't think we can overstate the significance of what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20. Everything makes sense now in light of Christ. Everything. This changes everything. I understand the law now because of Christ. I understand the way in which the world works now because of Christ. Christ becomes the way in which I make sense of everything. Christ, Christ is central. Christ is, Christ is it all. I mean, this is very important for the way in which we view our lives and the world around us. Jesus Christ is not a kind of, um, or, 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 or even the top of the list and a long list of various matters that help us make sense of the world. What Paul is claiming here in Galatians 2.20 is that Jesus Christ is the list from beginning to the end. He makes sense of it all. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. Lord, I pray that You'll help us as we continue to wrestle with this book. Give us ears to hear Lord, where we read things wrongly, guard and protect us. But I pray, Lord, that we will submit to the words that You have given us in this holy epistle so that our lives would begin to shift and alter because of what You have done for us in the faithfulness of Your Son. We're not faithful, Lord. Our faith is so weak. It's so paltry. But when we look to the cross, when we look to Jesus we see the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us so that we might be free. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.